I, I can't focus unless the gun is on the table. Nothing is normal or natural or everything is game. I'm gonna start a collection of puddings and coupons that can be redeemed for freaking fire miles. We have to get out of this building. They made soup out of my research department. See, this is the, the scene of the movie where you help me out. Hello and welcome to West versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator, the only podcast that I'm aware of about Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Paul W. S. Anderson. My name is Eric Anderson. And my name is Jeremy Anderson. Hello. Welcome to the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of like this podcast is like Olive Garden in that when you're here, you're part of a specific family whose last name is Anderson. Right. Which is, uh, that was the first draft of the Olive Garden ad campaign. But right, later right. They, ch- they changed it to just when you hear your family. It's it's quicker. They punched it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we're, we're in it. I finally remembered the full name of our podcast in the intro, uh, <laughs> which I think means that we're finally doing it we're finally Mm -hmm. covering the andersons uh you know we're giving them all their fair shot at at victory right uh we we've covered a few so this is our second paul thomas anderson movie Mm -hmm. that we're doing because we're going chronologically right uh i guess i want to get i want to talk a little bit about your history with this movie but first jeremy you know we're living. Let's let's just get it out there. We're living in a post Hubie Halloween world right That's now. That's right. Yes. You and I both. We were, we were texting. We we both watched the uh, the the hit. I'm gonna say a now mainstay in the mm-hmm. Halloween uh, comedy world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hubie Halloween. Uh, I, you know, I can't wait to talk to you about that. We have to record that episode still. But if you want to hear our thoughts on Hubie Halloween. Or uh, Halloween Two, or Idle Hands, or uh, <laughs> which? What was the other movie? The Day of the Dead. One of the Return of the, the Living Dead. Return of the Living Dead. Right. Uh, those are the four movies we're doing over on the Patreon for the the best month over there, October. Um, we do something a little different in October. We do spooky content, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what you'll get over there at Patreon.com/slash Eric and Jeremy. It's five bucks a month. Bonus episodes galore. You get the whole back catalog. Uh, I don't know. Jeremy, what do you say? Is it worth it? Oh, yeah. At this point, yeah. I mean, there were some early days of the Patreon where, you know, maybe we only had a few episodes up, up you know. But I think within the first six months, it was already a, a, a hefty uh, uh, offering that for just such a little investment, you can get so much content. I really sound like a snake oil salesman right now, but <laughs> but I guess what I mean to say is, if you subscribe to the Patreon, it will cure your diabetes. So, um, that's Jeremy making that claim. I have I have nothing to do with uh, with that. So, just for uh, you know, legal purposes, uh, mm-hmm. Jeremy, I cannot wait to talk Hubie with you, but. You know, we got to talk about this other movie. I know. We got to get this piece of sh- out of the way inferior. so we can talk about Hubie, yeah, Hubie Halloween. <laughs> you know, we were talking about, I guess this is relevant to this. Uh, uh, I, I think I texted you. I wonder if, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson saw Hubie Halloween because, oh, yeah. you know, Maya Rudolph is in there. And as I was watching the film, I was kind of like picturing PTA. Mm-hmm. It's, well, I wonder how. I wonder if he was like, you know, do you think he was like laughing out loud and slapping oh, yeah. his knees, or what do you what do you think a PTA is like during a movie like Hubie? You know, honestly, if I <laughs> that's a great <laughs> question. Um, I would like to actually do an episode where we guess what all directors are like watching Hubie Halloween. <laughs> um, like, what would Kubrick be like watching Hubie Halloween? But I guess I think he's um. He's probably sitting in a comfortable chair. I'm guessing that he has maybe a drink. Maybe like an ashtray close to him because he's probably smoking. And he's he's got his hand on his chin. He's kind of scratching it while he's watching. And anytime like a really funny, hilarious scene happens, he just kind of goes, huh. <laughs> like a like a little subtle, hmm. Yeah. 
You know, I think I think he's I don't think I don't see him as being a laugh out loud, rolling on the floor laughing kind of guy. But I do see him as being like a subtle like if it's the funniest thing in the world, he'll he'll crack a smile, you know? Yeah, I think you know, I I I think uh I I think I think you're probably right, but I think maybe he I think you know, he probably has a, a little bit of a silly side. But uh oh, I I was sure thinking does. about this the other day is I think that him and like obviously he and Sandler are friends. Right. Uh and you know, Meyer Rudolph and the Sandler and, and, and you know, I think that the Sandlers and the Andersons, uh, before COVID had like maybe like twice a year got together for dinner, like a family dinners and uh you know, maybe maybe they're close enough where they've done like a s like a like a Skype like a like a uh, what's the other one like a Zoom hangout? Oh yeah, you know? oh yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, that's the kind of thing that I like to think about in the in the you know deep hours of the night alone. Yeah, yeah. I um, <laughs> various th- celebrities hanging out. Well, that's a fun pairing though, right? Because you got the oh yeah the hilarious Maya Rudolph and the very humble and hilarious Adam Sandler, and I bet Paul's very funny in his in maybe a dry way. Sure. And, uh, I bet Adam Sandler's wife is hilarious. So I bet it's a fun hang. It's it's kind of like the 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 two couples. I'd I'd love to get invited to that dinner party. Are you kidding? That's that sounds great. Uh, I mean, I mean, I don't yeah, think I could. Yeah, by. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I could play it cool. Like I think, I think they probably asked me to leave after the fourth question about punch drunk love. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it's like I don't know. Paul Thomas Anderson directed and we'll get to that in the punch drunk love episode which i'm excited to get to because that is where adam sandler and paul had their like little love affair but Mm. he directed for adam sandler a couple of really funny shorts that ended up on like the mtv movie awards oh um that are like just outrageous and stupid uh and like punch drunk love in general is a comedy like it is it is structured like a comedy and there's very like the whole philip seymour hoffman side of that film is very funny so yeah i i think like uh, and 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 like i'm gonna go ahead and say boogie nights is one of the funniest movies ever made probably it is like it is a roller coaster and i would say it is it does maybe hit that drama a lot but Mm. it's it's for a paul thomas anderson movie it's incredibly funny like kind of a laugh a minute i'm i'm gonna be honest with you like just some of the situations that they get themselves in in this film are are bar none some of the funniest. It's definitely funnier than Magnolia, and it's definitely funnier than like There Will Be Blood. You know, like <laughs> it's got a sense of humor in it that's like really, really fun. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, I think PTA is. You know, he in interviews it's tough though because he comes off as kind of a uh, kind of like a a serious guy. Uh, yeah. He doesn't really let his freak flag fly that often, but when he talks about Sam Sandler, it's always like so funny to hear him t- like like recount like what it was like to watch Happy Gilmore for the first time. Like like he he loves Happy Gilmore and Big Daddy so much. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a great interview. Uh, I think it's for the A24's podcast with the Safty brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson. And it's like them interviewing each other. And it's really great. They talk about Sandler for a lot of it. And just like how great Sandler is and how funny he is. And you wouldn't think PTA would be like such a big fan of like those wacky, whack-ass comedies. But like he really is, you know. And it's kind of cool. Um, yeah. Wait, one more question with, with regarding Sandler. You're at a party... You have the opportunity to have a, a, a brief conversation with either PTA or the Sandman. Who, oh, who, are, you, who are you talking to? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. Uh, you know, I think I'm going to have to give it to the Sandman. Yeah, you got to. Yeah. I mean, it just like, you know, just like historically speaking for me, I'm like, if my 10-year-old my dumb 10 year old version of myself found out that I passed up an opportunity to talk to Adam Sandler. I mean, right. I would kick my, kick myself in the, you know, butt or in the butt <laughs> in the, in the naked butt. 
Yes, the naked butt. Uh, Jeremy, speaking of naked butts, uh, what's your history with Boogie Nights? I watched Boogie Nights after I watched Magnolia. Magnolia was the first PTA movie I saw. Um, when I saw Magnolia, that was my favorite movie of all time um, for a long time. Boogie Nights, I loved it the first time I watched it. I would proceed to watch it again and again and again, maybe three times a year for a good five years straight. Like, mm. I loved Boogie Nights I, and Magnolia and Puncher. I would watch PTA's movies kind of regularly, kind of rotate them in and out. Um, right. I won't I won't spoil how I felt about Boogie Nights this last go-around, but needless to say, it's a movie that I can kind of quote and, uh, you know, have it almost memorized at this point. And I'm... Uh, it's uh, I think it's one of the yeah it's hard because I, I do want to I do want to save some of my thoughts for the end but my history with it is definitely that I loved it immediately and never really stopped loving it and um, you know find that if I ever meet somebody and they haven't seen Boogie Nights it's one that I I, I usually push really hard to like let's watch it you know as soon as possible whenever you want to let's watch it because it's it's one that I think everyone should see, you know? Um, so, yeah, what about you? Uh, I've seen Boogie Nights. You know, this is... I, I talk about this a lot lately, is there was this period of my life where I had just gotten my driver's license and was finally able to, like, rent R-rated movies mm-hmm. on my own mm-hmm. and would just go to Blockbuster once or twice a week and just, you know, get a couple flicks. Um, and... Uh, Boogie Nights was one where I remember like seeing the cover for it mm-hmm. and thinking, when I'm old enough, I'm gonna I'm gonna rent Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. not knowing anything about it. Just kind of like I just remember the cover was so like alluring, and then I think I probably read the synopsis on the back, and you know I was like a teenage boy and was like thought that thought it sounded cool or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I remember I remember really liking it. Um, I have seen it since seen it a few times there's something that i is so this movie i agree with you it's very funny and it's a great movie uh personally for me uh this movie makes me very uncomfortable in some (laughs) ways in like uh i was i was raised like uh catholic i think you were you were raised religious you Mm -hmm. have a religious background too right yeah yeah Mm mm-hmm and uh, this to me was like, I remember, um, and I still had this sort of in the back of my mind when I was watching it uh, the other night. Um, I I have this sort of like, I think when I saw this movie, like I hadn't seen anything nearly as graphic. And this was like the one of the first movies where I really saw a lot of things. And I remember it kind of like, freaking me out a little bit like it it, it, it was like too much almost like i felt like i should like i saw something i shouldn't have seen which was it's kind of weird to think about because i was like 16 or whatever sure but you know i was like raised catholic and went to a, a, a catholic school for a while and uh and now you know when i was watching it this time i Still had a little bit of a little bit of that, but there's also I, I realized just the story itself like makes me really uncomfortable because it's so sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in terms of like humanity and and like human nature and the way show business works and stuff. Yeah, it like bums me out. But then there's this other side of me that ag- fully agrees with you where like, yeah, Boogie Nights is incredibly funny and there's some really funny, clever moments and it's great. But I have this weird sort of mental divide with this movie, I guess. So I totally get what you're saying. And I feel like that's also true with me about Magnolia also. We're like, they, they're both like incredibly um, shocking like they have a lot of like moments in the film that I find to be so incredibly sad and shocking 
it's almost unbearable. Like, and they make really good double features with each other because they both feature basically the same cast, and um, they're they're about sort of though their presentation is very similar. Where it's like this, like all these characters and how their lives interweave and connect. And uh, I think that like you're right, the subject matter of Boogie Nights is about the porn industry, which is incredibly uncomfortable, especially for young teens who like may or may not know how they feel about porn may or may not know like morally where they stand on some of this stuff. Um, and yeah, there's parts of Boogie Nights that legitimately just will always scare me because of, I, cause I also saw it young like you, Eric. So like, you know, I was probably like 17 when I saw it. So like, like the whole sequence with Mark Wahlberg and the guy in the car, like, that will always just like really freak me out and give me a panic attack. Yeah. Um, there's certain moments, uh, you know, Don Cheadle in the donut shop. A lot, most, of, most of the stuff that takes place in the 80s just like <laughs> really, really does freak me out. And so I, I'm with you there where I just like totally, you know, it, this, this film has like a little bit like what we we're talking about with Halloween 2 where because you saw it at such a young age, it'll always kind of scare you a little bit because it's like it's like you can't see it with fresh adult eyes because you saw it when you were a kid so yeah i totally get i totally get that yeah yeah and it does it 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 sort of has had at least in my experience like the fight club effect where like i guess by that i just mean it's like a movie that um uh, I, I I would love to hear like uh, I've never talked to like a, a a woman about this movie really. I would love to hear get like a female perspective on Boogie Nights, but Boogie Nights becomes like the you know you walk into someone's dorm room in college and there's like a Boogie Nights poster and a Fight Club poster. Like it's kind of like almost like when we talked about um, Hot Topic. Oh movies yeah, mm-hmm. in that, that Patreon episode. Yeah. Which, by the way, patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. Great episode. Yeah, that's a good one. We did over there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Jeremy, what do you say we dive into uh, the background? About yeah, let's do it. Boogie Nights. So uh, 1997 is when it came out. Uh, that's all I got. <laughs> uh, no, just kidding. <laughs> it is a, uh, written and directed by PTA. Uh, the film is an expansion of Anderson's uh, high school mockumentary short the Dirk Diggler story um have you ever seen this is this available uh uh-uh. yeah me neither I've and never I seen it. it never it, even looked it, into it, it it feels like the kind of thing that should be uh in like a bonus feature for like a blu-ray of, of the film so I, I don't yeah. know if that's like the case but I feel like that's where it should be it, that's where it should live <laughs> right Mm-hmm. Uh, the film premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 11th, 97, uh, and was theatrically released October 10th, 97, garnering critical praise, nominated for three Academy Awards, <laughs> Best Original Screenplay, uh, Best Supporting Actress for Julianne Moore, Best Supporting Actor for uh, Reynolds, uh, Anderson originally wanted the role of Eddie to be played by Leonardo DiCaprio. After seeing him in the Basketball Diaries, mm. DiCaprio enjoyed the screenplay but had to turn it down because he signed on to star in Titanic. He recommended Mark Wahlberg for the role. Um, I don't know. I I meant to look where at where this is in Wahlberg's career because it's obviously pretty early, but he knew yeah. DiCaprio apparently. So he had to have done some significant stuff before this, right? P- PTA? Uh, Wahlberg. Oh, Wahlberg. Yeah, well, Wahlberg is, you know, an 80s star from the Funky Bunch. Oh, right, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes. And I think he had maybe done some films before then. I'm not super, like, can't recall Wahlberg's career off the top of my head. But I think, like, you know, because he was a kind of a... Not a child actor but a kid he did stuff when he was a kid so yeah uh joaquin phoenix was also offered the role of eddie but turned it down due to concerns about playing a porn star which is interesting to me considering like what joaquin phoenix has done now in his career it's like this Mm -hmm. kind of almost fits perfectly with his career 
uh, his his filmography. I oh, think. yeah, absolutely. This these bits of trivia I'm finding to be really fascinating because I'm realizing, like, just how much like actors probably really wanted to do the movie, but then like you have all these like the pitfalls of playing a porn star, which seems to be so there's so much stigma around back in, in this time. Yeah. That it like kept a lot of people from being in the movie. Like, uh, the Burt Reynolds stuff is really interesting, but, uh, I also want to throw out there that Mark Wahlberg at this point had done fear, which was the one that I, that was the film I thought he had done before. So he had Uh. done fear already. Fear was a pretty big deal. It like, was him and Reese Witherspoon and he played like a psychopath in it. So I think it showed like that Mark Wahlberg was a decent actor at this point, um, mm. which is probably like why he wanted him. But the Burt Reynolds stuff, I don't know if you read that, but <clears throat> uh, he like did not want to do the movies. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson kept uh, like um, pitching it to him, like kept like asking him if he wanted to do it. The the mm-hmm. quote I'm getting from IMDb is like Burt Reynolds hated the idea of doing a movie promoting the porn industry and turned the Jack uh, Horner role down several times. He also felt like it was selling out and letting his old fans down. After angrily telling Paul Thomas Anderson this last time, the last time offered he wasn't interested and to leave him alone. Anderson told him if he could carry that attitude with him uh, to the role, he would be nominated for an Oscar. He subsequently chose to do the film and was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> oh. Uh, huh. and, and an addendum to that is, after seeing a rough cut of the film, Burt Reynolds regretted making it. He fired his agent for recommending the role to him <laughs> and did not participate in promotional interviews. Reynolds ended up winning wow. a Golden Globe for the role and being nominated for an Academy Award for his performance. Despite being a frontrunner for the latter, it was wi- uh, widely rumored that he, did not w- he, that he did not win because he had distanced himself from the movie earlier. Jeez. Interesting. Yeah. It, it's really upsetting to me because I am pretty pro porn industry at this point. Like, I think the one thing we've learned about sex work in our country is that like, it's, there's a lot of stigma around it and, you know, you know, women should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies and people should, you know, sex work should probably be legal. And like, I don't really buy subscribe to the idea that like porn is like ruins lives, like all these like, feels like older ideas about porn but they were really big they were really big in the 90s like people did not want and in the 2000s and kind of to this day they still it's still like our country sort of like really looks down on people who do porn in a way that is uh you know showcased in this movie quite a bit and i think that like it's just shocking to me that all these actors who are you know they're they're performers. They're like they're like Hollywood types. They're they're all like, oh no 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 no. We couldn't even portray a porn star or a porn manager or a porn director or a porn agent. You know, it's like, oh no 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 no. My I'm clutching my pearls. I'm Burt Reynolds, manly <laughs> Burt Reynolds, clutching my pearls. You know, it's like, yeah, I don't know. It just, it seems silly to me because I'm not gonna lie. Like, I'm not the biggest Burt Reynolds fan. This is like the best thing I think he's ever done. <laughs> yeah, I think so too, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's so interesting to me how PTA did, so he like did that, he did a short film that then became Hard Eight, which, mm-hmm. uh, you can listen to our episode on that, but, uh, Hard Eight was like, it's a good, it's a good movie. I mean, we, we talked about it and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good, but it's, it's like a very, uh. I don't know. It's kind of like a simple film almost. Like when you right. look back on at the plot, like not a lot happens really. Like it's a very cut and dry story with like a very clear twist and and is just kind of this simple and like not over the top sort of uh indie film kind of thing and it's interesting to me and I guess that went to I think Sundance or whatever it did sort of the festival circuit or something and obviously got like a, a release, but it's interesting to me how he was able to go from that to boogie nights where it's like the script. And I guess he did have this. I wonder if he was showing like as with the script, people would also see this like 
mockumentary he made in high school or if right, people right. were just re- the script was just going around and people had hard eight to reference what he was doing but it's so it's so interesting to me how much like buzz this movie got just for it being his sophomore film like how he was able to even get like burt reynolds or even like mark Wahlberg or like a lot of these people for his second movie is kind of blows my mind yeah i i will i do not understand this like i get pta's career post boogie nights being like sort of like he can do whatever he wants now like he's really proven himself i don't understand quite how he gets the how he has the clout to make this movie because right unless they were just like really chomping at the bit with filmmakers back in the 90s and i know there's a part of that that's true right because you have like this is the big era for independent film so you know tarantino kevin smith steven soderbergh pta the coens they all kind of come rise to fame in the 90s and like in the case of kevin smith he's able to do this like really low budget film <clears throat> and, it, and for his next film Mallrats, he like he gets like a cast he actually has like a a cast of celebrities in it you know um not everyone is a celebrity but you know a lot of the people in the film are you know actors he probably auditioned uh so i think the pipeline seemed to be in the 90s like you do your first film however you get that done get it done and if it's a hit or you know at least a critical success which i think hard eight was um then we'll give you a bigger budget and you can you know put celebrities in your film and make the subject matter whatever you want and it kind of seemed like that's sort of like what happened with pta where he was just given a lot more clout after doing a film like hard eight which wasn't again like we we mentioned it lost money but i think critically it, it was considered really good and i think the studios were hungry for you know these indie auteur filmmakers and um they gave him a shot at making this i also think that like you get the right studio. Like I think a new line ends up distributing the film. I don't know. Yeah. They distribute it. The production company. I think that the, it, you just get the right, you know, it's like a timing thing. You just get the right studio with the, with the right people at, at the helm. And you know, they want to make more daring content. Well, this is the most daring script imaginable, but like, yeah, this is, it. it is weird to think about like how on earth did, he get this made when he got it made, you know? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, so after uh, having a difficult time getting a hard eight released, uh, Anderson laid down a hard law when making Boogie Nights. Uh, he wanted the film to be over three hours long and to be rated NC-17. Uh, the film's producers, particularly Michael DeLuca, said that the film had to be either under three hours or rated R. Anderson uh, fought with them, uh, saying the film would have no mainstream appeal either way. Uh, they did not change their minds, and Anderson chose the R rating. Um, I feel like I've read that about other films, even films that we've done on this podcast where they wanted it to be the director wanted it to be NC-17 uh-huh. <laughs> and the producer are the producers who, you know, are trying to make money are always like, no, it has to be rated R. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what? that's, that, I don't know. I kind of think that's, that's silly. Like wanting it to be rated NC-17. Cause like way less people are going to see it if that's the case. And exactly. This movie, and this movie actually did really well. So According to William H. Macy, his agent discouraged him from reading the script. Macy read it, loved it, and signed on to do the film anyway. Oh, yeah, the and the uh, of course, the Electric Light or- Orchestra's Jeff Lynne originally refused to let the song Livin' Thing be used in the film because he has a problem with sex and violence in movies. Lynn asked to see a screening of the film and loved it so much that he allowed the song to be used. Mm. But uh, any any other trivia you... you found jeremy that you wanted to get out there dude it's like i mean if you go to the trivia section on imdb it is like 400 pages long and every (laughs) single thing is the coolest thing i've ever heard like yeah so we can't we just don't have the time to spend on it but i mean like pick your poison i just read one that just said uh 
uh, Jack Black was considered for the role of Scotty J, <laughs> which oh, great. I think would have been like, so, like, yeah, there's no end to like all of the really great um, stories that came out of this film. Uh, I guess the only other thing I wanted to mention is like this film, like a lot of it takes place in like Burbank, um, at least the house that they shot in. Hmm. Um, it's like, I think it's in Burbank or San Fernando Valley. Uh or it takes place in San Fernando Valley, but it was shot in Burbank. And like, you can go to the house and like see it, um, which is pretty cool. I also, um, yeah, I think that the, the Burt Reynolds stuff with PTA is really interesting. Cause you know, next episode when we talk about Wes Anderson's third film, the Royal tenant bombs, we're going to get a very similar story with Wes Anderson and Gene Hackman, where you got this old actor who's been around for a long time and a young director, um, and them just like not getting along and we'll kind of see what happens there. And in both cases, like I think like, you know, those are the best performances I've ever seen (laughs) in a, in, Mm. in their films. Like, like Gene Hackman is my all time favorite Wes Anderson character. Like his uh, Royal, Royal Tenenbaum is like, is like my favorite Wes Anderson character. And, uh, he hated doing the film, <laughs> uh, but he's so good in it. And I think the same thing with, um, you know, Burt Reynolds isn't my favorite PTA character ever written, but he is definitely up there for me. And the fact that he hated doing the film, I don't know, maybe it lent itself to like why the, the performance is so good. There's something about doing a film under duress, doing it, even though you don't want to that, you know, you bring something as a performer to that. So um, you know, that's a good call, Jeremy. I think, you know, instead of crowdfunding my uh, undercover uncle, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kidnap a bunch of actors. Right, yes. Uh, so I don't have to pay them. But then they'll thank me afterwards. When they, they will. When they win a Golden Globe. Mm-hmm. When they all win Golden Globes, all of them, and the entire cast. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, um, yeah, this is going to be great. I'm really excited to talk about this film because it is, <clears throat> it is like... It's really intense. It's really... Uh, there's a lot to it. Uh, there's no, there's no way we could possibly do it justice. It, it should so much be a two-parter. I know Magnolia is going to be a similar situation where it's just like there's just too much going on to really cover in one hour-long episode of podcasting. But I think I think we're going we're gonna to do our best, and I think it's going to be a good conversation. So I'm excited. Yeah. Um, <coughs> yeah, and we you can look forward to that on the next episode of... Wes versus Paul versus Paul versus mm-hmm. Predator. Now, Jeremy, <laughs> Hubie Halloween. I got to yes, know. Uh-huh. What, <laughs> no, we, you know, I, I honestly can't wait to talk about Hubie. But, I know. Uh, Same in, boat. <laughs> let's dive into the, uh, the plot of uh, Boogie Nights. In 1977, Eddie Adams is a high school dropout living with his stepfather, an emotionally abusive mother in Torrance, California. Uh, Torrance is like the Inland Empire, I think, right? It, yeah, mm, it's like south of LA. I was born in Torrance, actually. Oh. I was born in uh, Torrance oh, Memorial really? Hospital. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, whenever I saw that, you know, I was oh, in it's Texas. By Long Beach. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's by Long Beach. Yeah. So I was whenever I was in Texas watching this for the first time, I was like, oh, Torrance. Like I was born in Torrance, so I felt like I had a connection immediately upon watching it. Interesting. Uh, he works at the Reseda nightclub owned by Maurice Rodriguez. Uh, Ugh, was this Luis, Luis Guzman? Guzman yeah. yeah, he's great. He's a uh, man. Forgot yeah. he was in this movie, and yeah, was, whew, uh, where he meets uh, porn filmmaker Jack Horner, mm-hmm. uh, who auditions him. You know, I, I we got to get through it, but I, I just for a second want to talk about like how cool the intro to this film is, like. There's like a little overture you hear at the beginning and then it's just like explodes into um you've got the best of my love like that mm. that that disco song and you just see boogie nights and it's like it's the like the sign of the nightclub is called boogie nights you know and it like yeah. the camera it's, cool, it's all yeah. one shot you know the camera comes down and follows people into the nightclub and Louise Guzman's you know saying like uh you know, saying hello to some guests and like showing some people around and, and you just get this one shot that goes all the way through the nightclub and you meet all of the characters, you know? And, uh, you know, it finally gets to Mark Wahlberg, who's just like a little janitor or like a bar back or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, I just, I just, it's so cool the way that this, 
the film is set up, you know, and it's so celebratory and the energy is so fun. And, you know, roller girl, you know, being like, I have to go pee, you know, like stuff like there's like so many great moments in it. Yeah. Um, I think, I believe it follows roller girl around, right? Like she's sort of the one bouncing from group to group kind of talking with everybody. Uh, yeah, it's just like really electric, I think. And it's sort of like a good, like a good, like class and, and like how to like, if you have like a sprawling epic film, you know, this is like the, this is like the way to set it up. This is a good way to do it where it's just like, boom, here's everybody. And it's, and it's, and we're all having fun and it's the best time ever. And, you know, you're getting little intros to people. And, uh, I think the intro to Jack Horner is particularly good. And, you know, there's a seriousness to it. And, and it's, and it's like introducing you into a world that you just don't understand yet. You know, like, like the way Jack Horner, Jack Horner like kind of comes off as a predator for like most of the movie. And then you sort of come around to him as being like, mm. you know, he's more like a dad. It's, it's like a weird, it, it is very strange and foreign to, to people when they're watching it for the first time. They're like, what do I make of this? <laughs> like, yeah, such a weird, it is, it's so bizarre, uh, and, and, and shocking. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, I love uh, this. I really wish that I was like a teenager in the late 70s oh, uh, or like in college. I just, I don't know. There's like the whole, like people hate on, on, on disco and like this whole era. I guess they hate on the 80s a little bit more than, than this right. part of it. But this, it's just so, I mean, you get, you got the kind of like hippie culture and everything's mm. like colorful and stuff, right. but then disco is like so fun to me. Like I, I am not someone who like goes out dancing or anything, <laughs> but yeah. if this was the option, I mean, and there's like, like, like rainbow squares, light tiles lighting up on the floor and disco balls going and we're listening to you know, cool in the gang or whatever. Oh like, yeah. Dude. It's, there's something it, like all, all the lyrics are about, are, are like about having a good time and, 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 uh, you know, grooving and what, and whatnot. And are kind of like, just like meaningless and it just, everyone's, uh, just super happy and visually, I mean, very stimulating, especially when we're going through that, through that nightclub. Um, so yeah, after uh, arguing with his mother about his girlfriend and sex life, Adams moves in with Horner at his uh, San Fernando Valley home. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam gives him the screen name Dirk Diggler. I believe the the actor. Uh, I don't know if he's is is who is Adams? Is he the? Uh, is he? Adams is Eddie it is Adams. Mark Wahlberg. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's in the hot tub with like Jack Horner and John C. Riley, and is it is uh what's his name? The Punisher in there yet? Uh, the guy who plays the Punisher. What's what's his name? Uh, James. Oh. Uh, uh, something James. Uh, I don't know. It's uh. I thought it was uh, it's it's John C. Riley and Burt Reynolds and Wahlberg in the hot tub. Oh, okay. So it's just those three. We don't meet. Oh, yeah. Thomas Jane. That's his name. Thomas Jane. We we Which, meet Tom, uh, Thomas Jane later, I guess. But uh, by the way, I'm all for like a hot tub hang. You yeah, know, I don't mind a hot tub hang. Mm-hmm. But this sort of like barrel like hot tub that they have it's <laughs> yeah. too small for those three guys to. Be it really out. is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we also get the the introduction of John C. Riley and Mark Wahlberg's friendship at this party, this pool party, where like that scene where they first get together is like really fun, where he, they're talking about Han Solo oh, yeah. and and like doing a cannonball, you know, <laughs> like like they're like kids, kind of mm-hmm. like becoming friends together. Like, how much can you bench? I I look like Han Solo. Uh, let's do a cannonball, see who can splash the most. It's there's a uh, sweetness or a cuteness to it that's just really funny and like also makes you feel kind of like bad for them a little bit. Like maybe they're in over their heads. Like they don't realize they don't realize sort of like what they're doing maybe or like the implications of what they're doing because they're like so young and youthful and um, you know, like being dazzled by the, 
by the promise of like money and fame and stuff. Right. Um, yeah. His uh, success allows him to buy a new house, uh, an extensive wardrobe, and a competition orange 1977 <laughs> Chevy Corvette. Uh, I, I guess I, I don't know like where the uh, writer of this Wikipedia post uh, where they came up, wh- how they knew, knew that this color is called competition orange, <laughs> but they made a point to include that, so yeah. I'll say it. Uh, with friend and fellow porn star Reed Rothschild, Dirk pitches a series of successful action-themed porn films. Uh, Dirk works and socializes with others from the uh, porn industry, and they live carefree lifestyles in the late 70s disco era. <clears throat> um... I, what's the, like, it's the, the, just the concept of, uh, this guy wanting to make these, like, porn movies, but he wants them to be perceived the same way as, like, real, you know, cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Why doesn't he just make normal movies? You know what oh, I mean? Oh, right. Yeah. It's a good question. It's, I think it's because... it seems like that's what he cares about. Yeah, I think... So the implication here is that, like, there's there's an art form to what he's doing and that he's really good at it. And this is the business uh, that he came up in. And, yeah. and, I, and I also want to, like, echo that, like, from interviews with PTA, like, this is also how Paul Thomas Anderson feels about the porn industry. Like, he, mm-hmm. he he respects and loves it, and he thinks that, like, there is such an art form to this era. They call it the golden era of porn. It's, like, this 70s era um, where it was all shot on film and, like, and, like, treated, like, you know, some of these were treated like real movies, and you had, like, real celebrities like John Holmes, and I think, like, Deep Throat comes out at some point, and, like, it's it's... It seems like like the genre of porn was like heading in a direction, and I think the whole point of the movie, or one of the points, is like it just kind of shows how like the '80s kind of ruin where porn was heading and maybe where it could have ended up, which is like a legitimate art form, a legitimate style of cinema. But instead, the '80s sort of like destroy it <laughs> uh, with videotape and like flooding the market with like really cheaply done amateur stuff so i think that like yeah there's 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 a big like commentary in here about cinema in general too like about how like maybe this is what you could say about independent cinema of the 70s like with uh all of the you know roger corman graduates who like make all these great films and then the blockbuster 80s comes and and like mm. kind of wrecks that too so it's like they're it, like like they parallel each other in a, in a cool way but but you're right like i wonder if there really was a, a jack horner in real life who like who felt this way or were most pornographers sort of like, you know, just like treating it like a job, <laughs> like it's going to screen at a theater and then we're going to do another one. And who cares if it looks good or tasteful or whatever, you know, like I wonder if there really was a Jack Horner who was like, no, this could be great. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, Jeremy, this has inspired me to finally do what, what I've been thinking about doing since we started this, this podcast is mm-hmm. I'm going to, I am going to make people realize that podcasting is cinema. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Good. Good. Uh, that changes at a New Year's Eve party at Horner's house, marking the year 1980, when assistant director Little Bill Thompson discovers his wife with another man, shoots them both, and then kills himself. Ugh. Th- yeah, this whole wild. sequence is like absolutely. It's such a PTA moment and it's like so it's like too good <laughs> it's yeah. like uh you know you've seen all these characters like and they have like these you know they you know they have these lives but they're all like and they're they seem pretty carefree but they're all set up they're, like he sets up early all of these things that like he ends up subverting in in this in this halfway point and one of the things is like you know William H Macy constantly being emasculated by his wife, and uh, you know so we get that set up. You know we get the Scotty stuff early, which is like that. You know Scotty is clearly like kind of in love with Dirk Diggler, and like in at this party we see that he's bought a car that's yeah. the same exact car, 
which you know you imagine like scotty being just a boom operator probably couldn't afford uh and uh you know he tries to kiss dirk diggler and that's when uh you know we get that like awkward scene where he's like i'm stupid stupid so stupid so stupid or whatever um yeah so it's like it's yeah, which I, I think is like one of the all-time great moments in cinema history is like that scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman in the car crying. Like that's like it's also like a meme too, but it's it's very like uh it's so sad. It's like one of the most sad things I've ever seen is like him breaking down in the car <laughs> cuz saying yeah. that he's so stupid and stuff. Like like you end up like really loving this character who you didn't even knew, know was like having that much bearing on the story at all. Um yeah, he, one thing I really like about this movie before we get into the 80s stuff is like it's so in love with its characters like Paul Thomas Anderson clearly like loves all these people so much and there's only one character I can think of who's like genuinely like a bad person and that's the the general or whatever the guy who like hmm. is a child pornographer yeah. uh, Colonel James um, the financier like earlier in the film you see like like he's doing coke with clearly like a couple of underage people and like one of them has an o- like ODs or whatever and like they have to get escorted out of the party or like you imagine that girl maybe dies or something and um yeah like like that's the only character who I think the film really passes judgment on the rest of the characters like remain pretty judge judgment free even though they have like ups and downs like the film isn't telling you like whether or not they're good or bad the film just like really likes them and is showing you their lives ob- uh, objectively kind of, you know, and it's, it's, mm. it's really interesting because it feels like, even though this is a fiction, like there's some truth here about human nature and like, like you said earlier, like, yeah, human nature, like, like this is kind of how people are and it's, it's a bummer and it's complicated and, you know, we have crushes and we get jealous and sometimes we act erratically and, and make bad decisions and uh, we're about to see a lot of bad decisions happen uh, <laughs> all in a row. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you're talking about our podcast, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking <laughs> about our, uh, our 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 Hubie Halloween episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dirk and Reed begin using cocaine on a regular basis. Uh, due to Jer- Dirk's drug use, he falls into violent mood swings and becomes upset with Johnny Doe, a new leading man Jack has recruited. Uh, in 1983, after arguing with Jack, Dirk is fired and takes off with Reed to start a rock and roll career, <laughs> along with Scotty, a boom operator. Uh, so this is like, it's, they really do a good job of uh, presenting Dirk as a god-awful singer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's re- yeah. It's really bad. Yeah. Um, I think they it's also like hard to listen to. Oh, it's terrible, man. I think they also do a really good job of like portraying like cocaine addiction, like cocaine use. Like, yeah. like this is like one of the first times. It's like this and Goodfellas are like the two big like cocaine fueled sequences, the two best cocaine fueled sequences I've I've ever seen. Um, where it just is like it's so crazy how drugged out they get um and julianne moore is in there too which we haven't talked about julianne moore at all but she's in this film and she plays a really big part in this movie she's like yeah, the mother great, great performance yeah yeah like uh one of the absolute best like julianne moore is like one of the best in the biz and and she like she like has this like really great character who's like a mother to the other porn stars but also like a porn star herself and mm. Uh, you know, I think she's the one who introduces Dirk Diggler to cocaine and it's like almost like she's taking care of him like when she introduces it to him. So you get the sense that like even if Dirk wanted to say no, he felt so vulnerable and taken care of by her that he doesn't. And what ends up happening is they all get so down the rabbit hole with coke, uh, including Heather Graham. And it's like really painful to watch. And Julianne Moore is going through her own thing where like she can't get custody of her kids cause she's a porn star and a drug addict. And it's like really, it's like, man, yeah, the eighties are hard on all these characters, but, um, but I digress. Uh, let's see here. Jack rejects business overtures from Floyd Gondoli. <laughs> Uh, a theater <laughs> magnet in San Diego and San Francisco who insists on cutting costs by shooting on videotape because Jack believes 
that video will diminish the quality of his films. Uh, after his friend and financier, Colonel James, is imprisoned, Jack works with Gondoli, becoming disillusioned with the projects he expects him to turn out. Uh, one of these projects involves Jack and Roller Girl riding in a limousine searching for random men. Uh, when one man recognizes Roller Girl as a former high school classmate, he insults her and Jack, who attacks the man, leaving him injured on the sidewalk as the crew drives off. Gosh. So this is, like, crazy. This is one of the real uncomfortable parts for me. I mean, it's yeah. probably uncomfortable for everyone. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but I remember the music in this part being very effective as well. Yeah, so it's... um. It's uh Michael Penn, I think, does all the music for it, but he's 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 working with John Bryan, who's like PTA's sort of go to and uh it's like this like it's like this uh we actually heard this this overture theme in Heart Eight and we'll hear it again in Boogie Nights. It's like this I'm gonna try to do an, an attempt to do it. It's like boom bing boom bing. It's like this yes. like this like this like almost like a bell or like a gong yes. going off and it's uh it's so incredibly uh, evocative, right? Like, so you you get this scene that's like uh, Heather Graham uh, stomping a guy's face with her skates. <laughs> like, yeah. at some point, like, Thank she's God. so upset. Like, you see her finally crack, which she hasn't cracked the whole movie. Uh, and then that's cut in between Mark Wahlberg in the truck. And so it's like, you get both these, like, really dark Night of the Souls oh, right. yeah. happening. And um, they're both, like, having violent ends. And uh, you just get that, yeah, that music that uh, just, it just really like makes you feel like there's like an overwhelming quality to it. You're absolutely right. It, it's so uncomfortable and it's, it's scary. It's just straight up like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I lost my spot here. Leading lady Amber waves uh, finds herself in custody battle with her ex uh, husband the court determines that she will. She is an unfit mother due to her involvement in the porn industry, prior criminal record, and cocaine addiction. Uh, Buck Swope marries fellow porn star Jesse St. Vincent, who becomes mm. pregnant. Because of his past, Buck is disqualified from a bank loan and cannot open his own stereo equipment store. Uh, that night, he finds himself in the middle of a holdup at a donut shop in which the clerk, the robber, and an armed customer are killed. Ugh. This is also insane. Buck mm-hmm. escapes with the money that the robber demanded. It's like a miracle. It's like it's like so, it's like a yeah. it's like a violent miracle that happens for Buck Swope. Yeah, we again we didn't talk a lot about Dunn Cheadle. We haven't, but like another like part of the film that's so interesting, right? Like his whole mm-hmm. character is like he can't figure out like who he wants to be in porn. Like he keeps changing yeah. his identity, and then until like he finally gets out, and he takes um, J- Jesse St. Vincent character with him and i think it's like really it's like a really sweet story like of they like end up like getting married and having kids and he's trying to take care of them and and then he and then through no fault of his own a terrible thing happens where like all these people kill each other at the same time and he just has all this money and he just takes it uh yeah so having wasted their money on drugs Dirk and Reed cannot pay a studio record uh recording studio for demo tapes they believe will enable them to become music stars uh desperate for money Dirk resorts to prostitution but is assaulted and robbed by three men uh so this is obviously a little out of order but yeah I mean this uh incredibly sad very very sad uh totally thing to see uh Dirk Reed and their friend Todd Parker attempt to scam local drug dealer Richard Jackson by selling him a half kilo of baking soda as cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, yeah, I think M- me too. I, I, me too. Yeah. Okay. Good. I was wondering. I was curious to to hear what yours is because, yeah, I mean, when I think of Boogie Nights, I think of this scene specifically. Yeah. Um, Alfred Molina is the guy who plays Rahad Jackson and he's so good in that role as like the psycho drug buyer <laughs> guy, yeah. the rich guy with like the gun. And then you get like the huge bodyguard in the back who's like testing the Coke. And then you have on top of that, I think one of the greatest cinematic devices ever, which is the, the little, the young boy who's just like lighting firecrackers yeah, in the house. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
It's great. It's great. And then also they do this a lot in this. I would love to know the exact amount of money they paid for music rights for everything in this. Mm, mm-hmm. Cause I mean, in this scene alone, we get three songs. I think we mm-hmm. get sister Christian and then, um, Jesse's girl, I think. And then, right. and then I think there's one other one as they're running out of the house, but that's what I love about this movie too, is like, not only is the music great, but like PTA is like, not at all shy about like just switching uh, okay, we're go for immediately from Jesse's girl to uh, Sister Christian. Right, and like, right. It's yeah. just like switching. There's like no downtime. It feels very like high energy because of it. Yeah. Um, it also great. feels like so like, I don't know, Eric, like to me, this scene is so real. I, I, I've i never been in this situation, but it's like I feel like I have. <laughs> like it is like the paranoia when you're like, I guess I can only really compare it to like smoking weed, but like when you and a bunch of people are smoking weed and there's like loud music playing and you start to get like that paranoid energy of like, wait, who's in the house? What's going on? Like, I don't know. There's like something about it that just is like so real. Uh, I don't know if, if you like relate to the scene at all, but it's like, even though I've never like been in a stick up or like ever try to sell somebody like, you know, a, a false bill of goods or something, but it's like, there's something about this thing. That I just am like, I feel like I've been in seedy situations like that that I just wanted to get out of and I didn't know how. Yeah, while, while it also is weirdly high. relatable. Yeah. yeah, Dirk and Reed uh, decide to leave before Rahad's bodyguard inspects it, but Todd attempts to steal additional drugs and money from Rahad. Oof. Yeah, in ensuing gunfight. In the ensuing gunfight, Todd shoots Rahad's bodyguard, and Todd is killed by Rahad. Mm-hmm. Dirk and Reed uh, escape, and Dirk reconciles with Jack. Uh, in yeah. 1984, the Orwell year, uh, Buck and Jesse give birth to their son. Uh, Amber shoots the television commercial for Buck's store opening. Uh, Reed practices a successful magic act at the strip club. <sighs> Colonel James remains in prison. Maurice opens a nightclub, and Roller Girl takes a GED class. Uh, Dirk and Amber prepare to start filming again. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And this is when we get the very famous last scene of the film, which is the thing we wanted the whole time. We get <laughs> it. see it. We see it. He whips it out. We get it. Um, you're a star. You're a bright, you're a uh, big, bright, shining star. Apparently, Mark Wahlberg still uh, has that prosthetic. He got to keep it after the film. Oh, great. Great. Yeah. What was your, uh, what, what was your, how'd you feel watching uh, revisiting old boogie nights? All right, so I'm gonna tell you how I felt and give it a ranking. Uh, out of out of four Chucky freckles, mm. um, so revisiting Boogie Nights was better than ever. Um, best viewing yet. Really like I'm really like love watching some of these old classics. Uh, now a little bit like now that I'm a little older. Like I think the last time I probably watched Boogie Nights was yeah, I was probably like 27 maybe. So about six years ago and uh, you know, so much has happened and we know so much more now. And, you know, looking at this through the lens of like, you know, the me too movement happened and uh, you know, the things that, you know, Donald Trump is now president and just like, you know, a lot of things have changed and I have changed as a person. We're all a little different and watching boogie nights. Now it was, it was awesome to see that I felt better than ever about it. It's just like, it's one of like the least judgmental films I've ever seen. It is such like a, it's almost Shakespearean in how it plays out. It's like such an allegory for so many things. It's doing so much. I also think that it's like, there's something great about, it's like, it's totally not a film done by committee. Like this is like Paul Thomas Anderson's like front to back his movie. Because if this was a film that was done by committee where the studios had more input, they would have cut whole storylines. Like, they would have said, we don't need Buck Swope and Jesse St. Vincent. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to the story. Like, why would we have this? Why would we, like, hang on these characters for so long? Like, there would be so much missing from this movie um, that I, I would argue you just need it. You need it all to be here or, like, you'd be you'd be really missing big parts. So I think that it's really cool that this movie got to be made because I think if it was if it was made today... Like I said, I think it'd be missing a lot of stuff. I think they might have even cut the Julianne Moore stuff. 
they would have focused harder on on Dirk Diggler than they already did. Uh, you know, since he is like the main character, quote unquote. Uh, they truly just like like the film sort of predicts about the porn industry. They just don't really make movies like this anymore. Like, there's just not like this movie has like grit in a way that it's like hard to come by these days. It has an infinite amount of heart. Like the choice to play that uh, Beach Boys song at the very end, um, God only knows. Uh, while we're seeing all the characters like their lives now in 1984 where they're all kind of like on the up and up. Like they're all, they're all in an upswing. Uh, famously Paul Thomas Anderson in an interview, like they questioned him. They're like, look like this movie is like very grounded and it's very real. Uh, except for like the ending, you give them like a fairy tale ending. Like, and why was, why was your choice to do that? Because it's sort of, it's sort of not very realistic for like what might happen to these characters. And he, and he, and he says, you know, look like I, I'm in love with these people. I'm in love with these characters. Um, what happens after the film ends, you can only imagine is probably very terrible. Like these characters all probably end up not in great places, but there is a moment. He goes, I wanted to give them just a moment of, of, of fresh air, like a breath that they could Mm -hmm. take and be like, like, okay, like, yes, things are bad. The things will always be bad, but there is like, like give them, give them just a moment of reprieve. And he said, it was the least I could do for them. And I thought that that's, I just, I found that to be very insightful because it's like, yeah, it's like really true. Like, you know, characters at the end of movies, like there really is no such thing as a fairy tale ending. There's like endings and then life goes on and bad things will happen again. And, um, that's just kind of how it works. But, but showing, but showcasing like that, even though you're a porn star in the seventies and eighties and your life is what it is, you still get these like insane moments of joy and reprieve and, and love and you get to share that love and you get to like be a family. So anyways, those are some thoughts I had watching it this time. I think it's like, I think it's like one of the top 10 best movies of the nineties. Uh, so for that, I'm going to give it a four out of four Chucky freckles. My, f- my very first perfect score. Oh, there we go. Chucky freckle. Yeah. Four out of four. Love it. Four out of four. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I mentioned that like this movie, still makes me, uh, uncomfortable in a lot of ways, uh, but I think it's supposed to do that. I, you know, I don't know like what the porn industry was like in 1977, but the way this film is made, I'm like, I believe it. You know what I mean? I'm like, like, sure. I think like this, it seemed, I'm convinced that this is what it was like, um, (laughs) which I think that's like a, uh, you know, that's kind of a, a, a good, uh, accomplishment i guess there um and uh i mean there's just like so many great performances and uh such i mean the story is so tragic but it's almost like a story that needs to be told and i'm glad that pta is the one that did it and uh yeah, I th- I and just like the very thought that this is like the second movie that someone made uh it, it both impresses me and depresses me because I feel like I will never create something as just completely epic as Boogie Nights. Although Undercover Uncle has some potential. Uh <laughs> you know, I, I I yeah, I mean, there's not much else to say. I think this is a really good movie. I think you're probably right that it's one of the best of the nineties. Um, yeah. So I'll, I will give it, you know, I, I hesitate to give it four out of four because there's something about the, uh, there's something about like the story for me where like structurally, like it doesn't necessarily, um, like elevate in, in, in a certain way, like in, in the way that like uh, there will be blood does or the master right. where I think it's like maybe a different, I don't know what technical like st- story structure he's using, but it's a little, it's not what I, it's, it's not exactly uh, my favorite kind of like st- story structure, I guess, like just yes. the way that it sort of builds up is a little bit more like, linear or something Mm -hmm. so that's that's just one personal thing i have with it and i think 
you know, I can't give it less than a 3.5 because I gave Mortal Kombat a 3.5 <laughs> and that would just be ridiculous. <laughs> so I'll give Boogie Nights a 3.5 out of four Chucky Fries. All right. Which I think is a great score. That's a great score, yeah. <clears throat> the only four I've given so far is Bottle Rocket. Which, <clears throat> honestly, I gave a 3.5 to. It's, uh, you know, it's it's hard to deny some of these films like high like the highest score imaginable i mean they're just too good like bottle rocket and boogie nights it's like they might they're like they like feel like perfect movies when you watch them i mean we yeah we find issue with them but like i mean it's such minor things like you know i you know and it kind of just becomes about taste at some point or or maybe just nostalgia like like I, I like Bottle Rocket just a little less, and like why? I don't know. I don't know why. It's just, but it, they're both like to me nearly perfect. So, Jeremy, anything you want to plug before we sign uh, off? Here? You can follow me on Twitter at Ocarina of Crime. Go ahead and sign up for that Patreon now. Halloween is well underway. We are kicking ass Ooh. on that thing. I mean, seriously, like some of the best, most fun episodes I've ever done on any podcast live on that Patreon. Always around the month of October, always watching some spooky, scary content. So give it a whirl if you feel so inclined. Yeah. And uh, next week, uh, we're back to uh, Paul W.S. Anderson. Uh, weirdly, <laughs> very excited to watch this movie, Event Horizon. Yes, me too. This is one film. I'm looking forward to from Paul uh, W.S. Yes. Uh, so look forward to that. And Norma, I'll see you in my dreams. <laughs>